So when you come to faith in Christ, one of the things that happens with that, um, I guess we live in, I think we live in a world and a culture and a nation where we're very individualistic and many times I think we think of our faith as this personal thing between me and God. But the reality is scripture says when you come to faith in Christ, you actually become a child of God and you are welcomed into the family of God, which makes us brothers and sisters. Look around. This is your family. You know, sometimes you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. Look around you. These are your brothers and sisters. Unless, unless you're not in Christ yet, then they're your potential brothers and sisters, and then maybe that'll either encourage you, uh, you know, to come to Christ, or it might discourage you and just say, I don't want any part of this family. And brothers and sisters, as you know, sometimes squabble and fight and in some families, even distance themselves from one another, but they don't cease to be brothers and sisters still. It's unfortunate when you look at the history of the church, of Christianity, it has been too often one of disunity. And that's not the way um, God intended it to be from the beginning. Christians do sometimes find themselves at a crossroads, a fork in the road, a divide, and rather than discerning a path forward together... They choose to divide, to separate, to go their separate ways. And there are times, of course, when that might be necessary. But in most cases, it's not. In fact, the history, I think, of Christianity is that the church has split and divided over every conceivable and even inconceivable difference. And I would say that it is antithetical to the gospel. Reconciliation is the work of Christ, and it's supposed to be the work of the church as well. The gospel is good news for a polarized and a dangerously divided world. It really is. Because as we are one in Christ and the community of God, we hold hope for the world, hope for humanity. But too often Christianity looks more like the kingdoms of the world than the kingdom of God. But the reality is there's more that unites us in Christ than what divides us. Christianity's witness to the world is stained by division, and it is a scandal to the gospel. Before I say another word, let's go to the word, to Jesus, and hear what he has to say to us about unity. I'm in John chapter 17 this morning. John chapter 17, beginning with verse 20. It's on page 1049 of the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along. This is Jesus, by the way, in the upper room, the night that he was betrayed. Jesus praying for himself first, and then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for those who will believe in him through the teaching of his disciples. That's us. So let's listen in as Jesus is praying for us. John chapter 17, beginning with verse 20. He's praying to the Father. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning his disciples, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with 
be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me before, the, before you loved me, before the creation of the world, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus is praying here that all who believe in him, emphasis all who believe in him, will be one. This is the purpose and the plan of God. Jesus, and Jesus is specific about the, the character or the nature of that oneness that we're supposed to have with each other. Jesus says it's to be like the relationship that he has with his Father, so united in love and purpose with each other and the Holy Spirit that we say that there is one God. Jesus invites us into that blessed union with he and the Father and with one another. And listen, if God can be with us imperfect, fallen, fallible human beings, if God can accept us and be one with us, surely we can find it in us to be one with each other. Think about that. If God can be one with us, if God can be one with you, then you can find it in yourself to be one with those around you. And especially when we recognize not only our shared humanity, but our oneness in Christ. He is in me and in you, and our souls long for union with God, and they long for union with each other. And it is sin that separates us, fear and pride, ignorance and ego that keep us divided. Jesus says it again in verse 22, I have given them your glory that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. This is, this is the language of intimacy, of union. And, and he says we're already one in Christ. This is a spiritual reality. This is a, a mystical, a supernatural reality that in Christ, we are already one. We're already brothers and sisters in Christ. But it is a reality that must be pursued and practiced and preserved. Our unity, our oneness in Christ, despite differences, is to be a witness to the world of God's love and His power that is at work among us and that nothing else can explain how we're able to live and work and serve together in community. And when someone says something that, that takes you aback in the church, when someone says something to you and you're like, what? You believe that? You think that way? You vote that way? Or you read a Facebook post that makes you feel unsafe with that person and you're feeling judgmental or, or defensive, ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself this, I wonder what made him or her come to that conclusion or that belief. I wonder what he or she is feeling. And the more important question, I wonder what my reaction teaches me about myself. Jesus prayed for unity. He did not pray for uniformity. And there's a big difference. Unity can exist in the midst of diversity, but not without mutuality. I just heard uh, just the other day, someone shared this with me, that God, God speaks differently to each of us so that we will talk to one another. I like that. I don't believe that God is a God of chaos, but I do believe that he speaks differently to us. Not so, that we'll be, not so that we'll be divide, but so that we actually listen to one another and that we talk 
with one another. I love that. We have much to learn from one another. And there's a great deal of diversity within Christianity. You can see it just in, just in the way we worship alone. If you go to a Catholic, a Lutheran, an Anglican church, you'll be struck by how similar their liturgy and, and language is. But then go to a Baptist or a Mennonite church, and you'll experience something very different. And then go to a black Pentecostal church, and you'll say, my goodness, this is Christianity too. Christianity is the most adaptable religion in the world. There's no one way of doing things, no one style of worship, no one form of polity, no one way of doing or being church. It's why it's important this coming Saturday when we get together and and dream again for Zion, we're trying to discern what is God's course for us in this community, at this place in time. How will we uniquely reflect and represent God's kingdom. I chuckle when people tell me that they prefer traditional worship. Again, you go back to the idea of worship and the diversity within Christianity. When people say they prefer traditional, I want to say, well, which tradition? Whose tradition? I'm not even sure. And and is it traditional covenant? I'm not even sure what that is because the the covenant has never had a uh, one form of worship that it has advocated. And traditional for me means the church of my youth, which was a formal Lutheran liturgy and a hymnal that was published in in the 1930s. It's not the traditional you would want to probably worship by. And how far back do you have to go to call it traditional? Luther was writing hymns in his day to uh, familiar folk songs, what we would call pop music today. Now we sing a mighty fortress like it's the best of classical church music. And most of the beloved hymns of John and Charles Wesley weren't even sung in the church in the day that they were written because they weren't considered fit or proper for worship. And now they're classics. There's tremendous diversity within Christianity, and not just over worship styles. There are also theological and doctrinal differences among us and ways that we read and interpret Scripture. One of the great threats to Christianity in our own day is the the debate over same-sex marriage. But there have been contentious issues before. A much less volatile example of theological differences is around the topic of end times, what we in the church call eschatology. Consider the various positions. There's amillennial or amillennial, pre-trib or premillennial, postmillennial, and then under those, pre-trib and post-trib. And there's probably under categories under all of those as well yet. And everyone agrees that Jesus is coming back again. But when and how and what that will look like is anyone's guess, which is why some people are pan-millennial, which means it's going to all pan out in the end. <laughs> but you can find Christians who study this in depth, ad nauseum, and who are very certain about how things are going to go down. Christianity is the most flexible religion in the world, but that doesn't mean that all Christians are flexible. Martin Luther said that flexibility is a mark of maturity. Mature faith or religion is flexible, it's adaptable. Immature religion is rigid and fundamental. Right doctrine and right practice are essential, what we sometimes in the church call orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Those are essential, but Christians have always disagreed on various aspects of the faith. St. Augustine, who's one of the early church fathers, 
I think in his day already recognized the tensions and the differences within, within Christianity, and he gave a bit of wisdom that's sort of come down to us over the ages, and I think it's still something worth noting. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Let me say it again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, the fly in the ointment, of course, is that one person's essential or non-essential may be another person's essential. Okay? There's sometimes debate over that. But then again, we can look at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creeds that the church has had in place to help remind us of what it is that actually is essential. What is it that unites us? What is it that, that, that gives us that theological unity, if you will? And beyond that, there can be diversity or freedom. And above all, there should be charity if there's going to be any hope of unity. And Augustine's point is that the one thing needful is Jesus and that many of the things that we hold to, we should hold even loosely or sometimes even for the sake of unity, yield those things. Jesus prayed for unity among those who believe in him so that the world would see God's love at work in humanity so that the world would believe. When we come together in Christ and around the priorities of Jesus, the world will take notice of something miraculous, radical, even countercultural that's happening among us. And that can't be explained by human effort or human endeavor. It really is a God thing when people who are so diverse and so different, who may even disagree on some key things, are able to still to love and work and serve and worship together. Only the transforming power of the kingdom can explain why people who are so different can live as one. But we fundamentally fail the gospel when we splinter and divide. And unfortunately, the inclination to divide is in our DNA. If we aren't deliberate about preserving our unity, our oneness around Christ and the claims of the gospel, the church will cease to be relevant in an already polarized and divided world. If strife and division marks the church, if disunity marks the church as it does the world and presently our nation, then we are no better than the broken systems and structures of the world. At her best and in Christ, the church has a better, a better, a better way to offer the world. You know, Christianity first emerged not as a uh, new religion, but as a form, as a reform or sect of Judaism. And it was known initially as simply as the way. They were attempting to follow the simple way of Jesus' teachings, his death and resurrection as the path of transformation. Christianity gave the world a glimpse of a radical, countercultural new community of God where, where all the old dividing walls came down. They were removed. There was no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. That was huge. It was revolutionary. People who were once separated by race and ethnicity, by class or social status or gender, became one in Christ. But even at that, unity has never been easy for Christianity. Even a casual reading of, of the book of Acts or the letters of Paul reveals that there were threats to unity among believers over doctrine, theology, practice, cultural and ethnic differences. 
Acts chapter 6 reveals a dispute early on between believers over the distribution of food to the widows. It amounted to two factions, two people groups who, who disagreed, who, who were divided sharply. It was resolved, and the church continued to grow and flourish. Nine chapters later in, in, Acts, in Acts 15, we hear the tension over Gentile inclusion. And surely, they were welcome. No one was arguing that. But there were some who insisted that Gentile believers abide by Scripture, not eating certain foods, Sabbath-keeping, and circumcision. That dispute threatened to divide Christianity along Jewish and non-Jewish lines. The Apostle Paul helped the church stay united by declaring that there was no longer Jew and Gentile, but that they were one in Christ, no longer bound by the law. The book of Romans, Paul's greatest work, may have been written for the sole purpose of helping the church to navigate this path of Gentile inclusion. We have little understanding of how monumentally important that was in helping the church find a path forward. They were at a crossroads that could have divided Christianity. Some Jewish Christians argued that Paul was not being faithful to Scripture, and they had God's Word, the weight of God's Word, on their side. But the church wrestled with new challenges, and it recognized that God was at work in their midst, and they listened to the stories of Gentile believers. And when it came time to discern a path forward, they listened to the Holy Spirit, and they listened to their hearts, and prayerfully, they paved the path forward that preserved the unity of the church. They modeled for us how the church can stay together and work together in the face of explosive and divisive issues. A little over two centuries later, when Christianity became uh, the official religion of the Roman Empire, it exchanged the transforming power of the kingdom, of the gospel, for the power of and the rule, for earthly power and rule. And as the church ascended in, in, in prestige and power, it created a unifying structure. This is interesting. It was trying to recognize the unity, but it was forcing uniformity. It created a unifying structure and a standard liturgy that all were to follow, a form of worship that could be used in every church in the empire. A church calendar was developed that all were to follow. A lectionary of assigned readings was developed so that on any given Sunday, anywhere in the empire, Christians would be hearing the same lessons. This was Christendom, and it was about maintaining order and control and uniformity in Christendom. It worked, it worked while there was one empire. But when Rome fell and other nations rose to power, Christendom was stretched and it felt the tension that was centuries in the making. And it came to a head in 1054 with what historians call the Great Schism. It was the Great Divide between East and West, between rival powers of Rome and the Byzantines, between rival cities of Rome and Constantinople, what is present-day Istanbul. And they had rival popes, one in Constantinople, one in Rome. And in 1054, the popes excommunicated each other. Christians excommunicated each other. I imagine that on that day, Jesus wept. The opposing sides became known as the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. They had relatively minor differences between them. Sometimes the dispute was over the church calendar. What Sunday should we celebrate Easter? 
They still celebrate on different days. And the, and the real issues were not theology or church calendars or liturgy. The real issues were power and politics. And they are still divided to this day. And the great schism of 1054 paved a path for further division to come. 500 years later, the Protestant Reformation brought about another major divide to Christianity. And not just the separation between Catholic and Protestant, but the Protestant church into three branches. Lutherans, Calvinists, and Anglicans. There are some theological differences between them, but again, much more that unites than what divides them. But they remain separate and divided from each other, not so much over theology, although that was often the excuse, but over power and politics. Luther was German, Calvin was Swiss, he was actually French, but living in Switzerland, and the Anglicans were English. They were not able to come together because of their allegiances to monarchies and governments. Nationalism and national identity superseded their identity in Christ. That needs to be heard by us today. It is divisive and destructive when our faith or identity in Christ is tied with a particular tribe or nation or party or person. It is a sign that we have succumbed to the powers of the world and the principalities of this world and have rejected the transforming power of the kingdom of God that brings healing and hope to a divided humanity. With the Great Schism and the Protestant Reformation, the pathway of division became ever wider and well-trod. Protestants have in their DNA the idea of protest. We are quick to disagree with each other, to divide, to splinter, to go our own ways, to separate. And it is epidemic. Do you know that until the 19th century, there were no other denominations? Yeah, there was the split between, between Rome and Constantinople, and then the Protestant split. But official denominations, no. It wasn't until the 19th century that that sort of became a phenomenon. And by the year 1900, there were 2,000 denominations. By 1980, there were 20,000 denominations. By the year 2000, there were 34,000 denominations. Today, there are nearly 40,000 denominations. If there's any good news in it, I, I, I do believe that denominationalism is falling by the wayside. They're losing power, they're losing size, they're losing significance. And in many ways... Many of them are coming together, whether formally or not. Many of them are able to work together and come together. So it's not as bleak as it sounds, but it's still from the world's perspective. From the world's perspective, they look at us, they see the disunity, they see the divide, and they're like, you know, if you can't agree with each other, how am I supposed to be interested in what you have to offer? This is why it's a scandal to the gospel. It's, it's antithetical to the gospel. What they ought to be seeing is the fact that there's still differences among us, we're still able to be one. That was Jesus' prayer. So whether it's politics or social issues that we differ over, or whether it's theological positions or styles of worship, we are better together. We are better together. Jesus knew that there would be strains to the ties that bind, and so he prayed for our unity. Jesus became one with all of humanity. And he died for all people, that through him we would be one with each other and one with the Father. As Christians, listen, this is important. 
As Christians, we are called to be reconcilers, not polarizers. We're called to build bridges, not barriers. We're called to tear down dividing walls. The church of Jesus Christ is more about inclusion than it is exclusion. God is looking for ways to bring people in and together rather than keeping them out and separate. We have been reconciled to God in Christ and the ministry of reconciliation has been committed to us who are Christ's followers. We should be leading the way. We should be paving the way. We should be holding hope and healing for humanity coming together by the way we are able to love and serve and worship and be together in community. Jesus opened the way. And that way is a way of being and believing that brings people together despite differences. That's able to hold differences and paradox in tension. And sometimes we may even be able to celebrate those differences. When we are tempted, when you are tempted to leave, to separate, to go your own way, for whatever reason, and I'm going to say that, for whatever reason, you find yourself at this crossroads. I plead with you, I plead with us, that we would pursue the path of unity. Let us pray for and seek unity among all believers everywhere, not despite our differences, but in part because of them. We are better together. And if we, through Christ, can be one with God, we can surely figure out how to be one with each other, with God in us. For Jesus' sake and for the sake of a polarized and divided world. Amen. We're going to take a few moments of prayer before we come to uh, the Lord's table this morning. A couple things. Scripture says, our liturgies say as well, that in communion we're celebrating Oneness, Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says uh, that the bread that we break, that we're all part of one loaf, the imagery, if you will. We're all part of the one loaf that is Christ. And so we are recognizing our oneness with Christ when we come to the table. We're also recognizing and acknowledging our oneness with each other. But even beyond that, it isn't just about us this morning, Zion Covenant at 9.30 on Sunday morning. But we share in this meal oneness with Christ and with the whole Christian church on earth as we celebrate this meal. Oneness with all believers living and now in the presence of God as well, which is amazing. Again, something mystical, something spiritual, something supernatural happens in this meal in which we are connected with Christ, with one another, with all believers of all time In heaven and on earth, we are one. We need to recognize that. And so there's been a a teaching and a tradition in the church, and I I think it comes out of the verse where, where Jesus says, if you're coming to the altar and you're bringing your gift, and there remember that your brother has something against you, go, leave your gift, go make it right, then come back. In a sense, God says, I don't want your worship, I don't want your offerings, I don't want you 
without you working at as, par- as far as possible on your part to be reconciled. Broken relationships, extending forgiveness. So maybe this morning before you come to the table, maybe, maybe you need to do some business. Maybe you don't come to the table this morning because you're thinking, you know, there's, there's a relationship in my life that is just not right. And I know that God wants me to do something on my part to forgive, to reach out, to extend grace. Whatever it is that I need to do, at least try to build a bridge. So let God speak to your heart. I'm not telling you whether you should or shouldn't come. That's between you and God, okay? But I'm just reminding you that this table is all about unity, okay? And if you're coming here and there's division, there's strife, there's something that you know glaringly that you know is not right in your life, then maybe don't come this morning. But take that as a prompt to go and do some business with someone.